Rarecast listeners, virtual registration for the 2021 Rare Patient Advocacy Summit is now open. Gain insights about the latest in rare disease innovations, best practices for advocating on an individual and organizational level, and actionable strategies you can implement immediately to accelerate change. Register now and learn more at globalgenes.org forward slash event forward slash patient hyphen summit. That's globalgenes.org forward slash event forward slash patient hyphen summit. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. Advances in communication, information, and monitoring technologies have enabled the advent of decentralized clinical trials, but the COVID-19 pandemic crystallized the interest of regulators and trial sponsors. In fact, most biopharmaceutical companies today now expect to use elements of decentralized clinical trials and studies going forward. Science37 is providing a software platform to enable decentralized clinical trials and offering a range of services on top of that to meet the needs of trial sponsors. We spoke to Jonathan Kotlier, Chief Medical Officer of Science37, about the move toward decentralized clinical trials, how technology is changing the types of data that can be gathered, and how it is forever reshaping the way clinical studies are conducted. Jonathan, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Danny. Thanks for having me. We're going to talk about Science 37, decentralized clinical trials, and how technology is changing the way we're gathering data. I'd like to start with the landscape and the confluence of developments that are both driving a move towards decentralized clinical trials and accelerating that. Perhaps we should be clear for listeners and start with what a decentralized trial is and how it differs from traditional studies. Sure. I think that's a, that's a really good place to start. So decentralized trials have really come into the forefront, obviously, with, with COVID. Our organization started in, in 2014. So when we first started engaging in decentralized trials, there was quite, amount, quite a lot of skepticism just about the approach. And um, it's become, I think, more mainstream because really as a mitigation tool, decentralized clinical trial conduct was a necessity as sites were shut down over the past 18 months or so. But I think kind of in a nutshell, I think the concept of a decentralized trial is um, uh, sort of not depending on sites to conduct or execute a, a clinical trial for the purposes of drug development, drug approval. And what I mean by that is, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be that all the visits in a decentralized trial have to take place in somebody's home. I, but I think there, in, in most cases, everybody's concept of what a decentralized clinical trial means is that there'd be an equitable split of study visits, which historically have taken place almost exclusively in hospitals or clinical settings, and now migrating some of those visits into a, into a participant's home. And of course, the stars all have to align. You have to have an investigational drug that's safe. Uh, you have to have endpoints that make sense in terms of identifying whether a particular intervention 
is actually improving a given condition. You have to make sure that patients are aware that they actually have a certain diagnosis and that you can confirm eligibility on the grounds of taking patient narratives and then corroborating with the review of medical records. And of course, all the things that we typically take for granted when they occur in the context of a, of a traditional clinical trial, like being in person to know whether it's actually the person it's purported to be who's enrolling for a trial, consenting them for a trial, doing blood draws, doing all sorts of assessments. Um, but we can sort of break down each of those activities and figure out whether it's amenable and safe to do those in a patient's home. So I think, again, in a summary, it's going from a place where everything historically in a traditional trial has taken place in a clinic or a hospital and breaking those down and at least in some sense, seeing which activities can be conducted in somebody's you, home. You alluded to the impact COVID-19 has had on these centralized clinical trials. And I do want to talk about that. But before going there, what are the different elements that have kind of fallen into place to enable decentralized trials? What, what have been the long-term drivers? What problems have existed in traditional site-based trials that this can address? Yeah, it's a great question. I think the, the underlying theme, and I think the motivation that, that a lot of sponsors um, have really used to sort of even think about decentralized clinical trials is if you look historically at a traditional brick and mortar trials, there is a tremendous amount of enrollment challenges, largely because geography constitutes probably the single greatest variable as to whether uh, enrollment and, and ultimately the execution of the clinical trial is successful. And, and, and there's a lot of good statistics um, that have been published over the last decade or two. And the one that we typically look to, to quote is, if you take somebody off the street, if you surveyed 100 people and you say, hey, there's a clinical trial, it's safe, we're going to learn a lot of things, it, it's potential has, it has potential benefits for you, nearly 9 out of 10 or 90 out of 100 people will, will demonstrate interest. But the problem is, is that out of that 90% who are interested in a clinical trial, about 70% of those folks live two hours or more away from where the nearest clinical site is located. So even in cases where there's a tremendous amount of interest um, to participate in a clinical trial, geographically speaking, there are just limitations. And so that type of travel to and from a site, not just one time, but over the entire course of a, of a trial and getting arrangements for childcare and, and other dependent care and taking time off from work is just a non-starter. And, and that really is the large contributor to why so many clinical trials are delayed or fail to enroll altogether. Rare disease clinical trials present their own set of challenges. How has the adoption of decentralized clinical trials changed these studies? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Well, you know, similar to, to common conditions, you know, rare diseases um, and the geography associated where, you know, participants and their caregivers live in relation to where the clinical trials are taking place at sites, again, is, is, is probably the biggest variable as to whether a trial will ultimately be successful. But on top of that, um, compared to more common diseases, you know, rare diseases, the, the sheer volume or the sheer numbers of people who have conditions X, Y, or Z is so much lower that your, your, your total denominator of available patients who'd be interested in a study is just is so, much, is so much lower. And so that further, I think, amplifies the problem of geography. And so from our standpoint, I mean, look, we, we cut our teeth on, on a rare disease trial and a huge component of our business obviously because we're so mission focused on, on enabling people to participate from anywhere in clinical trials. Um, the rare disease category is, is 
something that that drives our organization and brings a lot of sponsors to to the table to to ultimately work with us to embark think, on studies for rare disease patients. Think of the confluence of technology, smartphones, cloud computing, ubiquitous and inexpensive monitoring devices. How have these enabled what you're doing with decentralized clinical trials? Great question. I mean, I think the 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 fact that in our pockets we're all carrying devices that allows us to do everything from hail a, hail a, a ride to the airport, order food, buy homes, arrange our vacations. So there's an expectation now that, um, you know, not just standard of care, healthcare, healthcare delivery, but also participation in clinical trials needs to, in many ways, echo what people typically expect in any given day for their, for their workflows to be, whether that's professionally or personally. And so there's just a certain expectation now that technology will enable participation in clinical trials in the same way that technology enables so many of these other things. We hear that directly from patients. They don't want to travel to sites for a blood draw or to be you know, weighed and measured because those are things that in the world we live in today are, are reasonably delivered at a, at a reasonable price for patients in their home. And those expectations now through technology are, are really no different on behalf of patients. So that's, I would say, a huge, been a huge driver um, to get to get you know drug companies to to move in this direction, and um, and of course you know patients when have the loudest voice, and 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 I think that's been hugely powerful. We, we touched on COVID, but how did COVID really accelerate this move towards clinical trials? How did it change the landscape? Yeah, well, and, and I sort of alluded to this earlier. You know, when we first started in 2014, we we basically created the category of decentralized clinical trials. We were committed to that as an organization. And at that time, you know, again, a lot of skepticism on behalf of the industry and justifiably so um, because it's a new way of doing things in our industry doesn't tend to move tremendously quickly um, in in many ways. Um, Back then, most of what we did was blending our interpretations of state and local telemedicine laws with guidance documents on the books provided by the FDA FDA that largely were, were dictating, you know, trial conduct at brick and mortar sites. And so that was uh, an interesting proposition to, to undertake. Some biopharma companies were really innovative. Um, others were, were, you know, yearned to innovate, but had, you know, were still skeptical of the DCT model. I think what happened with COVID is we saw the FDA and its European counterparts, the EMA, issue guidance documents um, in March and April of last year. 2020, where they called out specifically the use of decentralized clinical trial conduct, virtual visits, telemedicine as mitigation tools to provide continuity for patients who were soon to be enrolled on clinical trials before COVID hit and those that were already enrolled in clinical trials. And that provided the kind of rocket fuel um, for the entire industry to sort of say, all right, we have to move to decentralized clinical trials because the sites are shut down. We can't bring patients reasonably safely into sites without PPE being you know, given to them. We can't even get PPE for our own medical and nursing staffs. And so let's just keep patients at home and see what we can do using technology and decentralized clinical trial companies like Science 37 in order to keep patients safe. So that's really, to me, um, what what started, you know, giving some safety to, to organizations who may have been a little bit more resistant to incorporate DCTs into their normal, you know, tools for, for execution. I think of this kind of push and pull between industry and regulators. Who's been more ahead of the curve on this one? Has it been regulators or has it been industry? 
<laughs> it's funny you say that because I think, um, you know, we've had the luxury of being able to meet at a policy level with the FDA on, on several occasions over the past few years. And, and I w- what I would say is, is that between those conversations and the conversations that we routinely have with some of our collaborators and, and sponsors is that, you know, the, the sponsors are always saying, well, the FDA would never, never go for something like that. And yet when you speak to the FDA directly, it's like, no, we want to go for this. We want to innovate. So tell your sponsor partners to push for this and, 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 and we'll, we'll, we'll move forward. So I'd have to say if it was, if I was flipping a coin, I think that the FDA has been quite progressive. And I think in many cases, so too have our global biopharma partners. But in some cases, again, there's been some, some reticence on behalf of, of the pharma partners to move forward based on, I think, certain assumptions that the FDA would be a little bit more conservative than they actually are. And having been through this this year of COVID, did anything change in perceptions of decentralized trials or, or is industry more open to this now? Do they see it works? Yeah. And I, and I would ha- say, I think organically, even without, without COVID, I think we were still on a path to ultimately get to, to more sort of widespread industry acceptance. And, and there's a soon to be guidance document that the FDA is going to be publishing on decentralized clinical trial conduct. And so too will our sort of ex-US regulatory counterparts around the globe put out those same types of guidance documents. Um, I think what, what COVID did is really accelerate that adoption, that acceptance in a way that ultimately would have happened, but probably by at least a couple of years in terms of, um, in terms of efficiency to get there. We hear a lot about patient centricity. How has this changed the view on patient centricity in clinical trials? I don't know if it's changed it. I, I think if anything, it's reinforced that um, that there's a delivery model that's centered on the patient's own personal schedule, that's centered around where patients live and not necessarily on dependencies on the site. And so I think, again, it's probably just reinforcing what we already knew was going to take place with respect to the transformation to a more patient-centric, decentralized model, but, but really just expediting the path to get there. Because I do think that um, there had long been recognition that it's just really challenging to ask patients to um, you know, put everything in their personal lives on the back burner and drive to sites repeatedly over the course of their involvement in a clinical trial. And I think technology can enable a lot but it can't enable somebody to be teleported to a, a clinical site if they live a hundred miles away. And, um, and so bringing everything into the patient's home to the, to the you know, most possible is, um, is, is, had long been aspirational, but now we and others are, are doing that in a way that, that almost feels, um, I don't want to say banal, but it feels just very comfortable, very suitable. And, um, and I think in many ways will be the, the model or the paradigm moving forward for many trials. We've also heard a lot about real world data and the, the desire to incorporate more of it into the drug development process. Is this technology changing the types of data we can gather in a clinical study? For sure. For sure. So, I mean, certainly in the context of an interventional, you know, traditional phase two, phase three trial where you can migrate some of the, the, again, those procedures and assessments and endpoint data collection that we typically take for granted occur in the clinical space or the hospital. And to the extent that you can deploy now a mobile nurse into somebody's home and do everything from, you know, vital signs to biospecimen collections to some endpoint data collection um, through telemedicine is 
you know, been proven out over the last seven years that we've been doing that. But even if you look at just the way registries traditionally have been built, you can think about, you know, somebody who has de-identified data within a registry and all of a sudden you can tokenize their data, obviously after explicit approval to do so on behalf of a patient consenting to that. But you can add in things like medical records or wearables and then you can do telemedicine check-ins and have nurses come into the home and draw biomarkers and you can really improve the data set and the quality of the data um, within a registry to better inform sort of drug development and also just sort of... um, understand what patient journeys are in a way that we've never been able to do heretofore. One of the challenges with a a clinical trial that uses multiple sites is getting in, getting consistency in the way data is gathered or or measured. I'm wondering if decentralized clinical trials amplifies that issue, or if you've discovered other limitations or obstacles. Great question. I mean, I think, uh, yes. I mean, there's always going to be obstacles and there, there, you know, frankly, there are certain indications and certain endpoints that cannot be, you know, at the present time, migrated successfully in a validated way from the clinic or the hospital space. And, and, the, and the way I think about that is if you take a, the UPDRS, which is a traditional endpoint for Parkinson's disease, um, that is a really challenging endpoint because among other things that go into that overall scoring system is an experienced neurologist who can detect nuances from one patient to another with respect to rigidity, let's say. Um, and so to be able to do that through telemedicine is, is obviously challenging because you have to lay hands on a patient. And even in a clinical scenario, you know, how one experienced neurologist grades rigidity compared to another is, um, you know, there's always going to be probably issues with consistency and understanding what the inter-rater differences in terms of grading would be. But then if you think about from a decentralized clinical trial perspective, like objective endpoints, objective endpoints might be, you know, blood-based endpoints like a hemoglobin A1C, for instance, for for a type 1 or a type 2 diabetes patient. Like you can make the case, and, and we do all the time, that if you're doing a blood draw in somebody's home and sending it to a central lab, does it really matter if the blood draw is taking place in the home or in the hospital if you're using the same central lab ultimately to process that, that blood specimen and arrive at an endpoint? Probably not. And the same would hold true with, you know, endpoints that rely on imaging, where the images themselves can be, you know, reviewed in a de-identified way by a central rater or group of raters as to standardize the way we, you know, employ certain criteria on the basis of reading those images. Like those are the types of endpoints where taking a decentralized approach makes a lot of sense because there really aren't many site-based dependencies to engage in the collection of those endpoints. So again, every every trial is different, but I think that there's enough out there to make conduct in a decentralized fashion, not only compelling, but but the right choice in the name of patient centricity. Let's talk about Science 37. If you go to the website, it looks more like a technology company than say a CRO. What's the product, who's the customer, and and what's the business model? Yeah, so um, yeah, I would say that, you know, if you think if you think about sort of the, the way we've positioned ourselves, we 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 call ourselves an operating system. And basically, the backbone of that operating system is is the technology that that we built. But really, the I would say the take home message is what we're trying to achieve through this operating system is enabling universal access to patients and also to providers. And so, over the course of the seven years that we've been in existence, that construct has really allowed us to enroll faster, retain patients at a greater clip than what's historically been published in you know traditional brick and mortar research. And also engage with a more representative patient population. Because again, if the dependency is to drive to clinical sites, we know that there are certain communities 
that are located in proximity to, to clinical trial sites and other communities that are far removed. And that typically is, is, is why we see sort of at a socioeconomic and ethnic level, a lack of diversity. It, it has to do, again, with geographic proximity to where the clinical trials are, are taking place. And so, um, you know, we use our technology and our operating system, and then we have um, what we call sort of our specialized networks of patient communities and telemedicine investigators, mobile nurses, remote coordinators, and connected devices to really allow for, for universal access uh, in clinical trials. So are you enabling decentralized clinical trials? Or are you more of a hands-on role in, in having helping run them? That's both, I would say. I would say checks all the boxes. So we have a, a variety of different offerings. In some cases, we function as a site, albeit a site without any geographic restrictions because we have these networks of broadly licensed nurses and telemedicine investigators. So we have the ability uniquely to basically go into the living rooms of, of, of anybody who's otherwise eligible for a study and gives us consent uh, to participate in a clinical trial. And that's been, that represents, I think, the bread and butter of what we've done over the last seven and a half years, mostly in the phase two, phase three interventional space across a variety of different therapeutic areas. But we also provide technology um, for, for some of our, our customers. And so that might mean that they're using our platform just to, to help them gather evidence whether that evidence generation is taking place in a clinic or a hospital or in somebody's home. And in cases where on top of the, the technology, uh, organizations or sponsors want to work with us and leverage some of our other specialized networks, we support them in, in, in that way in a modularized fashion. So it really depends on the needs of a given sponsor or a CRO or a particular trial. And, and, and we can help enable either a little bit or, or a lot of decentralized clinical trial conduct. Have you been able to quantify the benefits you deliver either in times of terms of time to enrollment or cost or retention or other ways? Yes. And we, we, we use all those metrics. Sometimes, you know, we're able to deliver on sort of shorter timelines from first patient in to data lock. Sometimes we're asked to do things at not even a quicker pace, but we're asked to you know, engage in clinical trials explicitly for the purposes of engaging with communities that have traditionally been underrepresented in, in clinical trials. Um, in some cases, it's, it's both of those things. But, but on the whole, if you look at, at some of the sort of enrollment metrics and the retention metrics and the diversity metrics, again, they tend to exceed what, what we know historically has existed and has been published at the, at the site level. And I think a lot of that, you know, we, we, we certainly like to think that a lot of that has to do with the way we design and ultimately deliver studies. Um, but I think, again, a lot of this speaks to if you can bring trials to patients where they live, instead of requiring them to travel to sites, in many cases, that sort of unlocks some of the historical challenges we've seen with drug development and clinical trials um, altogether. As you think about the future of clinical trials, do you, you expect decentralized clinical trials to become the norm? Do you think the future trials will always include uh, an option? Yeah, I don't think that the the future holds a place where you know traditional brick and mortar conduct is um, goes extinct. I, I think that that would be that's a that would be silly. I think that there is certainly a need to engage in clinical research at brick and mortar sites. I think that it's an important component of drug development. I think that there's a, tr a lot of trust engendered 
on behalf of patients and their doctors who are who are at sites. And our our intent is not to circumvent sites or to make them to make them extinct at all. I think um, whether it's a, a mitigation against a pandemic, whether it's a few visits or even all visits for certain trials where it's a good fit to keep patients at home in cases where um, it's safe to do so. I think that what we'll we'll see is yeah, decentralized clinical trial conduct is here to stay. Um, the extent of, of DCTs in any given trial or across, you know, the number of trials in any given year will certainly grow. But I don't see that as competing with traditional conduct. I see them as synergistic. And, you know, from our standpoint, I think, and we've done this in a lot of our trials, where you have sort of juxtaposed traditional brick and mortar sites with what we call our meta site, which is really nothing more a fancy term for, for a virtual cohort engaging in a, in a clinical trial from the comfort of their home. And I think the two together deliver on sort of the best of historically we've appreciated about, um, about clinical research at the site, but also allow us to recruit and enroll patients from, from the white spaces and outside of your typical geographic boundaries where people are able to and willing to, to commute to clinical sites. So I, I see, is it really just a blend of, of, of both? Science 37 became a, a public company via merger with a SPAC with other financing efforts around that, you had a billion dollar plus market cap and 250 million to fund your activities. What's the plan for growth here? I don't think the plan for growth is going to deviate too much what we've done from from the last seven years. And, and frankly, from my standpoint, you know, being a public company is great. In 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 many ways, it's the fruition of, of of a tremendous amount of work done on behalf of a lot of people that have contributed to the success of the organization. But you know, our focus really is on delivering clinical trials in a way that ensures patient safety and generating high quality data. And to the extent that that trajectory changes now that we're a public company, I don't see that changing at all. I think we'll have um, just the added benefit of continuing to be able to scale our company um, and do so globally in a way that guarantees that that patients and providers basically all across the globe have access to uh, to, to Science37's capabilities and, and be part of decentralized trials on a, on a now global level. Jonathan Cotlier. Chief Medical Officer, Science 37, Jonathan, thanks so much for your time today. Thanks so much, Danny. It was great. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.